When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Vampires struggle to adjust to modern customs in the mockumentary What We Do in the Shadows. Timothy Spall stars in Mr. Turner, about the last 25 years in the life of Britain's most revered painter. Both films are available on demand starting May 5th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this episode, Matt tries his best to forget that one time he wound up on a world famous producer's casting couch as we review the Hollywood horror movie Starry Eyes. Okay, that's not true. But Julian Schnabel did one time give me his hotel room key during a red carpet interview. That was funny. Mm, did he want you to play the diving bell or the butterfly? All right, stop that. Stop that. Mm, what? What? Anyway, later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots. We recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by Starry Eyes, which involves devil-worshipping Hollywood types, we decided to host ourselves a good old-fashioned satanic ritual. Allison brought the candles, and I have to say, a very nice dagger. Beautiful, really. I painted this good pentagram on the floor of the office. That's some nice work, too. I thought so. I painted it perfectly, and we even bought a novelty Satan costume for my dog Kirby to wear. But wouldn't you know it, I misplaced my grimoire. And how are we going to worship Lucifer without a Book of Shadows, Allison? Unacceptable. I guess we'll just have to do the next best thing and watch Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2 instead. Oh, by Satan, no. Anything but that. All right, fine. I tried. Didn't work. My trick didn't work. (laughs) Instead, let's talk about some other movies about the dark side of Hollywood and show business that you can rent or stream at home right now. Before we get to those picks, though, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this week? Well, first up, we have a film I liked a lot from last year that I don't think really got enough attention. Uh, it is Mommy, which will be available for uh, on demand on April 28th. The fifth film from 26-year-old French-Canadian actor and filmmaker Xavier Delan, that goddamn slacker. Uh, the film stars Anne Derval as Diane Dupree, a widowed uh, mother of a kind of difficult teenage son named Steve, played by Antoine Olivier Poulon, who is really fantastic in the movie 
and uh, she befriends the two of them really befriend the next door neighbor who has a speech impediment and who kind of becomes part of their surrogate family for a little bit and uh, the thing that really makes it worth watching is just it's Dolan's talent really it's this movie is so exuberant and so filled with life and so filled with style it's it, there's a montage set to Wonderwall that features one of it's one of like my, my favorite scenes from last year uh, and it also I, I think the other thing with this movie is that it still feels like it's very much from a young filmmaker I, I think there are some things about it that are a little annoying, including the framing device in the beginning that sets up the ending so clearly and so kind of, and so artificially that it's a little frustrating. There, uh, you know, Delan, if you've ever seen his semi-autobiographical debut, I Killed My Mother, you still see a lot of the same themes of like, I hate you, mom, in this. Uh, but I, I think that's part of what's so exciting about it is that it's, there's so much talent and so much life and vibrancy to this movie that watching it, it's clear that Delan's made a very good movie and that he's got a great one coming very soon. Écoutez, Diane, j'en ai vu et j'en vois des jeunes passer ici. On en échappe quelques-uns et puis on se résigne à perdre les autres. La pire chose qu'on puisse faire à un enfant malade, c'est se croire ou le croire invincible. C'est pas parce qu'on aime quelqu'un qu'on peut le sauver. L'amour a rien à voir là-dedans. Malheureusement. Les sceptiques seront confondus. So uh, I definitely think you should check that out. I know it got a pretty small release in theaters. So now's your chance. Mommy is available on demand on April 28th. Uh, Currently available on demand is Adult Beginners, which is a kind of dramedy, comedy drama, a little more on the comedy side, directed by Ross Katz and written by Jeff Cox and Liz Flair. But it's based on a story by Nick Kroll, who is the star and thanks to his involvement, it has a fantastic cast, including Rose Byrne, uh, who plays his character's sister, Bobby Cannavale, who is married to Rose Byrne in the movie, Joel McHale, Jane Krakowski, Josh Charles, Mike Birbiglia, Bobby Moynihan. It's a, it's kind of, it's a slightly disappointingly standard Arrested Development movie in that Nick Kroll plays a character who loses all of his money and has to move home with his married sister uh, in her kind in their uh, Long Island childhood home but the cast is really good and their little interactions are very are so nice and so well done that I think it's easier to overlook the fact that it feels familiar Uh, you know if you're going to see a familiar story you might as well see it acted by people you like this much so that is now available on demand and available on demand on May 5th is a is a directorial debut by one Ryan Gosling. You may have heard of him. It is Lost River. Hey, girl. eh, It's good. Let's go to the Lost River. That's pretty much how I think he directed this movie. (laughs) It's actually not... I think it got a little... Pretty derided at Cannes when it premiered. Yeah. I did not hate it. I think it's not... It's not a masterpiece, but he's got a lot of ambition, which is something for an actor making his, his debut. And it's very David Lynch. It's kind of set, it's filmed in Detroit and set in this sort of dreamlike Detroit called Lost River. Stars Christina Hendricks of Mad Men, Ian DeCastiker of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Matt Smith, formerly of Doctor Who, Sorcerer Ronan, Ben Mendelsohn, Ava Mendes. It's a good cast. I know. And it's, 
there's a lot of interesting ideas in there, including this this mostly abandoned city in which houses are being knocked down, and there's this dark burlesque club in which women perform by uh, letting themselves be pretend murdered on stage. Sure, why not? <laughs> uh, it don't. It does not hold together, but eh, it's definitely an interesting thing, especially if, if you're a fan of Gosling's. Uh, it you can really peer at it for a long try- time trying to find insight into his soul. How's that? It is Lost River, and that is available on demand on May 5th. I'm Sarah Walker. Hi, Sarah. I brought a headshot. That won't be necessary. We have your digital file. Yeah, of course. Um, I just thought you might want a hard copy. What you do in this room right now will render that headshot null and void. When you exit this room, you will either have made a lasting impression or blend into the sea of thousands of forgotten girls who pass through these halls every day. Photograph won't change that. The options for this episode's Listener's Choice Review were Paul Verhoeven's English language debut, Flesh and Blood, the Hollywood horror movie Starry Eyes, and the Australian crime film Son of a Gun. And when the poll closed at filmspottingsvu.com, Son of a Gun came in a distant third place with just 13% of the vote. Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood was in second place with 35% of the vote. And it was Starry Eyes coming out victorious with 51% of the votes. The film, which is written and directed by the team of Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, follows an aspiring actress named Sarah, played by Alex Esso, through her day-to-day struggles in Hollywood. She's disrespected at her day job, working at a sleazy Hooters-esque restaurant. And she doesn't have much more luck at her many, many auditions, at least until she answers an ad looking for someone to star in a new horror film called The Silver Scream. Now, that rating doesn't go great either, but when one of the producers catches Sarah ripping out her own hair in the bathroom after the audition, she's given a second chance. And what happens then is probably the first indication that the, well, this opportunity of a lifetime might come at the cost of, let's say, several other people's lives. Uh, Starry Eyes starts off as a sort of Hollywood satire and then winds up as something much darker. It's sort of the player meets the house of the devil. It's the movie House of the Devil. That could have been the (laughs) alternate title. Allison, you were the one who really pushed for this one to be a listener's choice option on our last episode, mostly on the strength of some good reviews and strong word of mouth and social media buzz. You said you'd been seeing people on Twitter talking it up and stuff. So my simple question to you is, did Starry Eyes live up to all that hype you had been hearing? I think, you know, on the scale of it being an indie horror movie, I think it halfway did. I I liked a lot of the the beginning and the setup and the just the moodiness and the sense of dark things kind of creeping in around the edges of mm-hmm. this story. And I really liked that the movie was centered on this character who was already kind of a halfway scary person, you know, someone who was very lost and Mm -hmm. had no clear sense of self and was so fixated on fame as this thing that was going to kind of save her. I was a little less interested in it when it ultimately, ultimately becomes a straight horror movie towards the ends. Uh, And 
a very gory one, which I think, you know, is part of it's something that the uh, horror film community is always a big fan of, but I think was less it was less interesting for me once it got to that point. But I was impressed by especially the first half. And I think a lot of the ways uh, there's like an audition scene in which it which involves her photo getting taken in the dark. And I really like the way that was staged. I like the way her relationships with her roommate and her roommate's friends were kind of laid out and the general sense of isolation of that character. Uh, but I don't know. What do you think? Did this work for you as an indie horror movie? Uh, not particularly, I have to say. I was almost hoping that uh, you would have liked it more so that I could have <laughs> been the, you know, like I could have really come after you for making me watch this. I, but I generally pretty much agree with your assessment. I think the Hollywood stuff, the early scenes are the best in the movie. The horror stuff, for what they are, you know, I'm sh- are, are competent. They're well made, you know, for a movie that I'm sure cost almost nothing it's a pretty respectable horror movie that the gore the the blood and guts and all that stuff if you want that kind of stuff i think it's done respectably and, or as, as respectable as like someone getting like chopped to bits can be but i i was not terribly taken with that side of the movie and i think the sort of metaphor that they're playing at here I don't know if it's obvious, but it's just like, okay, to to become a star in Hollywood, you might have to sell your soul to the devil, literally. That's basically it. And I just thought, okay, I got that. And it didn't seem like the movie had that much more to say. And I thought that was sort of why it became kind of a very standard horror movie. And I didn't really understand how that – I mean, it almost becomes like a slasher movie at, at a certain point that really has very little to do – with the story of this young woman who's an aspiring actress and down on her luck. I mean, I guess you could say, again, bringing it back to that metaphor, that, well, to achieve a new life in Hollywood, you may have to destroy the old one, I guess. But to me, I felt like I was kind of watching a movie sort of spin its wheels, basically. Yeah, I definitely felt by the time it arrived at that point that it it lost a lot of the com- like the sense of complexity that was there in the beginning. I mean, for me, like... In some ways, the best part of the movie is when the character goes to a meeting with the producer for the first time and slowly starts to realize that she's there to have sex with the producer. That right. The producer expects her to do that in order to get the role. And that when she goes home and is talking to her roommate, she's like not certain if she shouldn't have done it. You yeah. know, that she's almost like, is that was like, was that too far after she like leaves and says no. Right. How she's bad? Like, and she's like, how bad do I really want this? Right. And I feel like that, like psychologically is like the best territory that can be explored to be Mm -hmm. like when you're like when you're expecting to be victimized in a certain extent because that's how what you think the job entails right Uh, and when you're kind of willing to throw everything or think you should be willing to throw everything out there so i did feel like once it let go of that to get into more obviously supernatural territory uh as much as i i think the the lead actress you know gives everything to some like very before even the getting into the slasher territory to just like some a psych uh, physical transformation that is impressively disturbing I it's think. a tough it's a tough role yeah and it asks a lot of her and she does a pretty great job with it i thought the best scenes generally were the ones with her and sort of her her little clique of friends 
you know, they're all kind of struggling actors and filmmakers. There felt to me like that was the place where all the authenticity in this movie was. You know, I don't know the filmmakers. I don't know their backgrounds or lifestyles. But those are the scenes that, to me, that felt the most lived in, the most real, perhaps the most true to the lives of these filmmakers because they seem the most authentic. Noah Segan is like one of her buddies or a potential love interest, but maybe he's also interested in another girl. And there's kind of this uh, uh, rivalry that's going on there. And there's a lot of sort of like people who are kind of encouraging to one another, but also kind of nervous that someone is going to become more famous and more successful and leave them in the dust. Right. She has that one friend who is always kind of negging her, basically, whenever she says something, she's anything goes well for her. The friend is always like, oh, like, that's like, I hope that's not the role you're trying out for. Right. Like, like, are you a little overdressed for this? Right. All, All of that stuff, I thought, felt very true to life, very on the very on the nose in a good way, really kind of hit what the desperate side of of Hollywood must be like. And even and some of the scenes of her at work at that Hooters style restaurant where she's forced to degrade herself and 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 dress in that horrifying fashion and Pat Healy has a a nice little role as her boss. I thought that stuff was great too. Uh, but but almost like right off the bat with these evil producers who are so weird. They're acting. They I had a real also pro- kind of David Lynch in a way that yes. doesn't really fit in with where the movie is at that point. Yeah, maybe they're. Yeah, you're right. The, now that I even think that when you say that, like the uh, older producer that she eventually means, you mentioned him, and the, he's the, that's the scene where she's sort of slowly propositioned and she runs out in horror, he's but like, then regrets he's it. He's not played by Ray Wise, but he seems like he should be. I was going to say, you're right. It's very <laughs> much like the audition scene in Mulholland Drive. But, and yes, the some of the other actors in that sort of side of the story, they do have a kind of lynching quality. But or they don't. Rosemary ba- Rosemary's, Rosemary's baby, baby yeah. is the other one that I definitely thought of as well. But I, but I feel like in Rosemary's Baby, you know, those actors they're not playing necessarily weird. They're playing kind of ingratiating. They're like so, like they're so, not doing it right, but they're trying to be ingratiating. Right. These char- these actors are just playing kind of weird, like off. There's just something peculiar about them, and uh, it just seemed like a put on right from the start. It, they didn't seem like. I don't know, like, I'm going to give some respect to Satanists here. I feel like Satanists (laughs) are normal people. They're going to be able to, even if they're, like, working for the Dark Lord, they've probably got enough juice with Satan to convince, trick someone. I felt like there was, it'd be very hard to trick anyone the way these people were acting. That's true, though. I I would say, probably, if if you're being offered a role and you're an aspiring actor... They can act as weird as they want, and that's probably. And, he, and I, I would guess that the so the filmmakers might say that's the point: is yeah. that she's so desperate, and she certainly is desperate. She'll, I mean, it is. Well, how much will you do? How far will you go? And clearly, this this woman will go to almost any length to get a part to succeed to become a Hollywood star. I just thought that their performances were kind of one note, and and that's not very interesting, you know. Yeah. Like the, the that she Sarah, the, this character is interesting. She's giving it her all. She seems real, even when the story gets kind of outrageous. You know, she keeps a kind of base level of reality that's really good. But I thought some of those Satanists who really kind of become begin to dominate the movie, you know, we start to lose the friends and it becomes more and more about these weird producers. I just thought that as sort of the further it went down that road, the less interesting the movie got. Yeah, I agree. I do like that it sets up this this almost this divide at one point where one of her friends is like, let's make a movie together. We're going to collaborate. We're going to make an indie movie. You know, we're going to make it for nothing. But we're right. going to collaborate. Like, you'll be in the movie with my movie and all of that. And it's set up as this, like, this promise of, like, yeah, like the usual DIY, like, indie kind of, like, this is this is one way to get started. And then it presents that as a divide between, like, that 
or going this very more traditional route, but also with it just taking a lot of abuse, basically, like taking, in this case, selling your soul. And that it sets that up. I, you know, it sets up this like this possible alternative that she could have reached for. And then she rejects it because there's, she has no real interest in, you know, what she wants is stardom. Right. Not not just to work, but to be famous. Right. right. The vision she has of herself is like immaculate and like ready to go on a stage and accept an award. Right. To done be up, somebody. done up to the, done up to the extreme. Yeah. yeah. No, you're absolutely right. That's all there. I just, I felt like I wanted, I wanted more. I wanted something more from the second half of this movie. I'm like, okay, it's like you're watching it. and You're like, oh, I get it. You have to sell your soul to become a star. You know, uh, you might have to make an almost literal deal with the devil to become what you want in Hollywood. Okay, got it. And now what? And then, and and I, I don't think the filmmakers ever really satisfactorily answered that question. And now what became, well, now we're just going to kill a bunch of people and it's going to become a slasher film for 20 minutes. And then the movie's over. It's a short movie. And for what it is, I think, like I said, it's well made, but I can't really recommend it as, as anything more than, than, you know, sort of an interesting kernel of an idea that doesn't get taken very far, but then goes into this, you know, standard horror movie fair that if that's what you want, it's going to deliver definitely in terms of the gore and the, the guts and the blood and all that stuff. But uh, it's that's about it. That's that's all you're gonna get. Yeah, I liked it a little more than you did, but I'm pretty much in the same boat. Like I, I think it has a very promising start, and then it doesn't really pull it together for me, and it just kind of, it goes into very familiar territory. All right, well that's Starry Eyes, and that's available now on Netflix. It's something written in the headlights. It's something swimming. Okay, so it's time for cue shots. We're going to recommend some other Hollywood films, show business films, all about the dark side of, of show business. Are there any show movies about the light side of show business kind, that present gentle movies? Yeah, about someone has stars acting? in their eyes and uh, they don't sure, become Satanists. Sure. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of you know, let's put on a show type. True. Type You're right. Movies that have all been heartwarming. You know, they're definitely in the minority though. Yeah. Isn't it strange how the people who are in control of this industry are the ones who are making these movies saying, don't try it. It's a horror. No, it'll all, you'll, you'll ruin your life. Do you think they're just trying to keep the competition away? I think that's a good, that's a good argument to make. But also if you're doing right what you know, True. the thing you most literally know is how difficult and soul destroying it is <laughs> to be struggling in Hollywood. Then that's, I think what you come up with is some dark stuff. That's probably a good point too. That's probably a combination of the, of the two of them. You're so beaten down by the system that you don't want anyone else to uh, steal what little position you have. So that's why you wind up writing a, a movie like Our Picks. You want to go first? Sure. Uh, I have one that actually feels like 
It could be the comedic sibling to Starry Eyes. Okay. It is Ellie Parker, which Mm. is streaming for free on Hulu. This is a 2005 uh, indie that was written and directed by actor and filmmaker Scott Coffey, who uh, more recently made Adult World. And it's uh, it started as a short film of the same name that Coffee made with Naomi Watts. Uh, they both star- appeared in Mulholland Drive, which is a classic dark side of Hollywood film. Yes. And the short played at Sundance in 2001. And then the two of them shot this film, built this up into a feature film over the next four years. Uh, and it, it was released in 2005. Watts plays the title character, who is an actress who's still waiting for her breakout. And who spends her days driving around uh, to auditions in L.A., running her lines and putting on a full face of makeup and changing into new outfits as she drives on the freeway, which is this very impressive, terrifying thing to watch. Uh, And it's shot on a handheld digital camera. So there are definitely times where it looks rough. It looks rough in the way that a digital camera looked in 2005. But it I mean, part of that rawness really fits what is what is basically a series of. Uh, episodic moments in this character's life as a character who is like a more broken, less successful Naomi Watts. <laughs> She's an Australian actress. She uh, never, she lives with this musician boyfriend who is cheating on her and also a ter- like in general, a kind of disappointing person. And uh, her best friend is another actress who is out of work and they always feel a little hurt when one learns that the other is going to an audition that the that one of them wasn't called up for. And uh, I, I think the thing that this this movie does so well is to suggest the ways in which acting is almost insanity, like that it is basically the equivalent of insanity, what you're being asked to do, mm-hmm. to call on these like deep personal emotions right on on cue to be able to summon those emotions and get to that place mentally and then to snap out of it and then go back to life and then go back to another character especially in the case of auditions and you know you have ellie going to one audition and playing a sobbing southern bell trying to follow the the director's cues to be more raw whatever that means and then, you know, she collapses on the floor and then pops up again being like, can I do it? Again? Do you need it again? I can try it this way. Uh, one of the funnier scenes has uh, Ellie and her best friend arguing over, after they've just gone to acting class, arguing over who uh, who is like better at method acting, basically. Whether it's better to call on real trauma or to call on just making up imagined trauma. And it leads to them having a competition in the car over who can cry first and who is better at crying. And it's so it's played. We totally should do straight. one of those sometime. We should do one of those. <laughs> it's played totally straight, and it's so funny. Uh, and the movie has a bunch of little cameos from from famous faces, including Keanu Reeves, most famously, in his band mm. because the characters go to see Dog Star, and <laughs> and he meets them <laughs> afterwards and hangs out with them a little bit. Oh, Dog yeah. Star! Yeah, and I think one of the best things that this movie does is suggest, without ever like being on the nose about this, it puts. It puts in two separate parts of the movie, Ellie going to see her therapist and kind of doing regression therapy and like curling up on the couch. And later, Ellie going to acting class and basically doing the same thing as an acting exercise. And it really kind of hammers hammers in this idea of, of, yeah, that acting requires you to do this thing that can kind of really fundamentally unsettle your sense of self. You know, she's performing in therapy 
and she's dredging up childhood memories and performing them in acting class and that it it leaves you a little it can leave you a little adrift as a person particularly when you're not really sure what else you have going on you know you have no all of your identity is tied to these roles that you're not sure you're getting so it's it's like a really satisfying little film given that it's very like it's very raw and low budget and on the fly and i think it ends with a nice a Hollywood's a brutal place kind of image. Uh, and it's got some great work from Naomi Watts, who has no ego at all, vanity at all, when it comes to when it comes to this role. Um, so that's Ellie Parker, and it is streaming on Hulu. That's one I've never seen. It sounds uh, it sounds really great. I'm looking here at the Wikipedia page. It says the budget. It seems high, but it says yeah. the budget was $4 million. Box office, $45,000. <laughs> so it's probably one that a lot of people haven't seen. So I think that's a great recommendation. I'm going to I'm gonna watch it because it sounds really great. And um, I'm going to – I guess I can't add it to my My List. It's on Hulu, it's you on said. It's on Hulu, All yes. right. Well, I'll have to – I don't know what the equivalent on Hulu is called, but I'll, I'll add it on there. My first pick is not strictly speaking set in Hollywood, but it is certainly set in a – dark future version of show business and this is the film the running man from 1987 which is directed by paul michael glazer and is currently available to stream on netflix uh, i don't know maybe it's the fact that i rewatched this movie last week the same day that abc released a teaser for the newest season of the bachelorette <laughs> where for the first time two bachelorettes will be competing to find their own mr right amongst 25 eligible eligible bachelors that I realized that uh, as silly as The Running Man is, and it is very silly, that it was a pretty prescient film in certain ways. It's set in the dark future of the year 2017, so it's coming up quick. <laughs> things are going to go really bad in the next things, few years to get Things us are going to fall apart very quickly. The world economy is going to collapse. We're all going to start wearing jumpsuits. And, I'm already there. Yes. Well, well, we already are there in another way, too, which is that society is mollified by the viewing of reality television. <laughs> um, it's uh, mostly this extremely violent reality show called survivor oh hold on uh, no it's a uh, it's called sex box no wait that's an actual show that was on television yeah, it was. Uh, it's called married at first sight no wait that's another show that my wife watches uh no hang on these are all real shows okay the running man that is the name of the show and frankly i'm kind of surprised there isn't a running man show on television we're yet. close I we're think. getting so close naked we have was it naked and afraid or something like that <laughs> That sounds worse than what The Running Man actually is, which is basically American gladiators meets Roman gladiatorial to the death style <laughs> combat, right? And Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's an actor I don't really know, I'm not really familiar with this guy, yeah, but yeah. Well, he seemed, he? he's pretty he's pretty good in the movie. I think he's got kind of a bright future ahead of him. He plays this cop. He's wrongfully accused of uh, a murdering unarmed civilians during a food riot. And as a convict, he's given a chance to commute his sentence by becoming a contestant on The Running Man. If he wins, he's free. But if he loses, he is he is dead. So the whole reality show aspect of the film is enhanced greatly, I think, by the fact that the host and producer of The Running Man show within the movie, uh, th this guy, by the way, is named Damon Killian, which is such a great name for a bad guy uh, he's played by richard dawson who was the host of family feud for decades and he's perfect for the part he's just wonderfully sleazy his interactions with this bloodthirsty audience his faux sincerity and friendliness that he kind of turns on when the camera is on and as soon as the camera is off he's right back to the manipulator and just he was always a terrifying host actual tv show host the way he would cloyingly <laughs> demand kisses yes, from all the women all of the women yes. he would kiss them all on the lips 
Yes. <laughs> I don't know if he does it in the movie, but uh, perhaps... It'd be weird if he kissed Arnold Schwarzenegger on the lips. I would. I, I think that would add a very interesting dimension to this film. <laughs> the, uh, the Running Man is loosely based on a Stephen King novel, which I haven't read, but apparently it's very, very loosely based. I read the Wikipedia description. Wikipedia is never wrong, so I'm sure it's very accurate, and it seemed quite different from from the film and i'm sure it's 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 not as sharp intelligent satirical as the book but you know it's a pretty good exercise in speculative sci-fi action arnold has some great one-liners as he's picking off these gladiators they're called stalkers you know there's like one guy they all have different themes there's one guy named sub-zero who's like got a hockey gimmick and he kills him and he goes here's sub-zero now plane zero and you know another guy he like cuts in half with a chainsaw and then someone asks what happened to him he's like he had to split you know so it's all it's all basically arnold schwarzenegger saying terrible puns yeah the whole movie it's ideal for you it really is fantastic but again the review the the view of reality television here is not that far off from the world of sex box married at first sight and naked and scared or whatever you're whatever and afraid naked and afraid whatever that one you were talking about was yeah it's like i could see this happening like if dancing with the stars had a bad season of ratings wise and like they were like we gotta how are we gonna it's like okay well the two teams that are about to get uh thrown off they're gonna have to fight to the death and the survivor gets to say like we're not that it doesn't seem that implausible to me so i feel like this movie which was pretty silly in 1987 still pretty silly in 2015 but it's a little bit it's getting it feels like it's getting a little more prescient every single year so uh, i enjoyed rewatching it the last week i think it's 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 holding up pretty nicely for a movie where arnold schwarzenegger kills a guy named sub-zero and says here's plane zero so that's the running man and that is available now on netflix uh, for my other pick, I went with a really a famous film. Last Action Hero. No, it was not oh. Last Action Hero, though. That's an it fits. Yeah, it's an interesting Dark call. Side of Hollywood. It is. It's Arnold true. Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I went with one of the, like a famous film that's a Dark Side of Hollywood okay. film. And there are some we haven't mentioned, but there are some sure. classic. Absolutely. Sex, and also some terrible ones like Burn, Hollywood, Burn. Oh, my. Why would you even remember mention? Remember that? Yes, I, I do remember like, it. I feel like it raises that point, important point of these films are not good when they're too self-congratulatory in the, in the name of being satires. Yes. And I think that what's interesting about the player, which is available for rent on Uh. a lot of different platforms is the way that it is both very fond of filmmaking while being a satire of Hollywood and being as director Robert Altman put it a very mild satire, which I think is one of the reasons that it holds up pretty well. It's very famously filled with uh, celebrity cameos, everyone from Harry Belafonte to Angelica Houston to, to Burt Reynolds to give it a real feel of peeking inside the works of Hollywood, which is something that I think maybe felt a little fresher in 1992 than it would today when the, you know, the workings of Hollywood seem to be constantly on display and sometimes in very ugly ways via TMZ. So not quite as titillating as, as, it would be, you know, as today, not quite as titillating. But I think that what holds up so well is the way that it it kind of, it, it allows the idea of life being like a movie to seem like a disturbing concept, right? So you, this is about Griffin Mill, played by Tim Robbins, who is a high-powered Hollywood executive who starts to believe he's, one, being a uh, usurped by this ambitious newcomer named Larry Levy, played by Peter Gallagher, 
And uh, who's also been getting two, he's been getting death threats in the mail from what appears to be a disgruntled, disgruntled writer that he blew off once and who's now angry and trying to get his revenge. And this combination stresses him out and leads him to murder the guy he thinks is responsible, who he immediately learns was not actually responsible. And the threat of getting caught hangs over him throughout the rest of the film, even as he starts a romance with the dead guy's girlfriend, played by Greta Scacchi. Uh, and I think what's what's good about this film or what like it's funny that the famous elevator pitch construction that this movie uh, brought out right it's like blank meets blank it's like the Maltese Falcon meets Happy Madison it's like Point Break meets Pretty Woman wait wait uh, hold on I'm just imagining <laughs> the Maltese Falcon meets a Happy Madison movie and I can't get out of it I'm trapped. This is an uh, it's like an existential nightmare. Mm. I'm sorry. Continue. No, but if I no if you see me shivering over here, you'll know why. A Happy Madison production of the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> anyway, you know, I it's it was supposed to be it was funny in the context of the times, and it really doesn't feel funny at all in the context of our age of movies based on board games and toy lines. <laughs> That's nothing, right? Someone making someone abbreviating their movie into it's like blank meets blank is nothing compared to you know Battleship the movie. So uh, a lot of that part of the movie does not seem nearly as sharp as you know it probably did then. Mm -hmm. but the uh, the fundamental darkness of it it really follows this arc of american psycho in a lot of ways mm -hmm. that you have this character who seems to have no internal cares uh and no kind of no kind of guilt over this other than he's worried about not getting caught and he's worried about staying on top and uh, the moments in which life in the player seem like a movie from that the opening shot which is uh, about you know it's a touch of evil style shot in which characters talk about touch of evil's opening shot as it happens to later uh, there's a certain point where the characters go off to a resort uh, in the desert and it really just seems like a movie like you know beautiful people like naked uh, jumping naked into the springs and kissing it's like there's no real life hmm. And I think that kind of sponginess uh, ultimately uh, becomes this very disturbing quality, especially when you finally get to the ending, which is a real precursor to adaptation, in which first you have this, uh, this supposedly gritty, dark, uncompromised movie, and you see it, how it actually plays out with a Hollywood ending, and it's hilarious and also horrible. Habeas Corpus, Habeas I think Corpus, is the name, as yes. I remember, yeah. Like, what took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's amazing and yeah. then it kind of ends with this really bleak coda in the name of a happy ending that's uh, i think pretty brilliant and a pretty good condemnation of if not hollywood necessarily then this this character and this kind of this hollywood happy ending mindset in a way that's pretty timeless and that has nothing to do with the details of whatever moment you're in in Hollywood. And I think that is what continues to resonate, uh, even as this movie is now several decades old. Uh, and that is The Player, and it is available for rent. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie since I was a teenager. I loved that movie when I was a teenager, so I'd be interested to see how it holds up. I think the interesting thing about it, and you've sort of touched on it, but comparing it in my mind to Starry Eyes, is the dark side of Hollywood in The Player 
it's like dark, it's horrifying, but it's also kind of seductive, right? Oh, it's, it's beautiful, right? And sunny. It's not just like oh, monster, Satan, it's evil. Like there is some, there's a part of it where they actually say like you might have to murder someone to get ahead, but look at all the beautiful things that happen after that. Like there is something to it where you're kind of being seduced by the movie, and even that ending that you mentioned, which is so brilliant, it's like indulging that 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 cheery fantasy and like sort of the darkness of that. It's just so great. That's what I think really something like starry eyes was maybe lacking, you know, but it's so difficult to get. It's, it's not so easy. like to, to land on something like that. It's true. Is, yeah. That's what makes the player so awesome. So yeah, I, I, I have to go back and rewatch it. It's been too long since I've seen that one. My last pick is the latest film from director David Cronenberg and its portrait of Hollywood is so sad and bleak, it could almost be set in the same universe as Starry Eyes, really. You know, it's not supernatural, but there's a kind of a sadness and darkness there as well. It's called Maps to the Stars. It uh, just came out earlier this year. It's available for rent on Amazon and iTunes. And it's about this group of characters, all of them horrible, most of them vile, a few of them violent and dangerous. They include Julianne Moore as Havana Sagrand, this middle-aged actress on the verge of career oblivion who's convinced herself that the way to revive her sagging job prospects is by starring in a remake of a movie that her mother made when she was a popular actress decades earlier. There's also Evan Bird as Benji Weiss, who is this awful—he's kind of like a Justin Bieber type. He's a horrific— insensitive child star he's 12 years old he's already almost as washed up as Havana Sagrand is he's just gotten out of rehab he's starring in a sequel called Bad Babysitter 2 <laughs> uh, his father is played by John Cusack he's a sleazy massage therapist guru guy the mom is played by Olivia Williams she's the stage mom from hell there's also Mia Wasikowska as Agatha she's this young girl who's arrived in Los Angeles in like very stereotypical cliched fashion she's looking to get into the film business and Robert Pattinson plays a, another aspiring actor and also a limo driver who becomes her chauffeur and then her boyfriend. I saw this movie uh, a month or so ago, Allison. I rented it, actually. And I watched it I watched it one night, and I kind of sat there going, huh. And I didn't feel like I got it. So the next night, before it expired, I watched it again, which is something I don't do that often. And after that second viewing and then talking about it with some people, I started to kind of come around to it. It's a very cold movie. It's a David Cronenberg movie. It's not an easy film to love. But eventually I kind of saw it, at least from Cronenberg's perspective, it's kind of this weird offspring of Videodrome and The Brood. It's about child abuse. It's about crackpot therapists. It's about show business as almost like a sexually transmitted disease because it's passed down generation to generation almost. Uh, the most common complaint I heard about the movie when it was out was that the satire felt a little tired, a little hackneyed, that it wasn't very sharp. And I don't think that's necessarily off. Ultimately, what I felt, though, what I came around to on that second viewing is that that sense of staleness sort of fits with Maps to the Stars' view of Hollywood, in which the world is defined by its total lack of imagination. This is a place where there are no new ideas, right? The movie Benji is making is a sequel. The movie Havana wants to make is a remake. And she wants to essentially remake her mother. She wants to become her mother. Basically, in this world, the, the people are remakes, right? Agatha 
is almost a reincarnation of Havana's mother in a weird way. Havana wants to become the reincarnation of her mother. Uh, they're both attempting to replace their parents in very unsettling ways. So to me, like, it's like every everything in, in this movie is a remake, including the people, I found to be a very interesting interpretation of, of Hollywood. That originality does not exist in Hollywood, right down to the people making the movies. I thought it was kind of an interesting view. And it's sort of after I, I saw the movie that way, I started to like it a lot more. And I have to say, for a movie that I didn't really like all that much the first time, and and saw it again mostly just to kind of wrap my brain around it. It's something that I haven't stopped thinking about. I, it, I it's been coming back to me in like the month or so since I saw it. It's it stayed with me in a way that I didn't expect. And in a way, even movies by Cronenberg that I would say I enjoyed more watching them, I I haven't. Something about this movie really I find I don't know disturbing in a way that that is is hanging around. So I would recommend people checking out – prepare yourself for a movie that is not going to be super satisfying. It's not the player. It's not hilarious. You know, Even calling it a Hollywood satire maybe is entirely accurate because it's not very funny. There's not a lot of jokes. But it's, it's, it's almost more of a Hollywood condemnation really than a satire. But I think there's something there. It's something that's stuck with me. Did you see it? I, I did see it. Yeah. I do. I mean, I was. I do want to see it again. It's one that left me pretty just bemused. I would say mm-hmm. seeing it out of can. I, I mean, I think that it's worth mentioning the screenplay is by Bruce Wagner, right? Who is kind of famously a writer of novels that are dark Hollywood satire. Yes. And I do feel like the movie is sort of at war with its screenplay in a way. In that, like. It does have all of these elements of Hollywood satire that are never really funny and that are never really on point. Mm-hmm. But then, like, the Cronenberginess of it is always more interested in this dreamlike weirdness, right? Yeah. In this sense of this empire of this, like, incestuous empire, right? The family is just, like, doomed to do these cycles again and again and right. again. Exactly. And uh, just the weirdness of that. Uh, and there's even a little bit of body horror in there, you know, with Agatha and what's happened to her. And I actually thought the the, the casting of, of Evan Bird, this, you know, sort of pre-pubescent or right on the verge of pubescent guy. like With we Justin see, Timberlake 90s hair. Yeah, yeah, but we see him without his shirt at one point and he's got this kind of weird, you know. He's, Tween body. Yeah, yeah. That and there's something about him that almost seems like the human, you know, it's like even the human body just in a normal state. To David Cronenberg is like he it's kind of weird. It's weird looking. Yeah. And and that even though it's such a sunny, bright movie, that there is such darkness and weirdness in it. I I felt like that was where the Cronenberg side of it kind of came out. Yeah. And Julianne Moore is like a spectacularly awful, plays a spectacularly awful oh, person. Oh, she's fantastic. And she is great. In she that. is wonderful. Like I just I do always think of this scene in which she calls Agatha, who's working as her personal assistant at the time, in while she's on the toilet and is kind of like, don't be <laughs> a little, embarrassed. A little more and, body yeah, horror there, too, exactly. actually. And then, like, gives her a list of things to buy from the store. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty good. She's great. She is really, she, yeah, she gives a fantastic performance. I think it's worth checking out. I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked if people take my recommendation and then write us and say, I hated that. Why would you recommend <laughs> that? But maybe I will get some that say, actually, that was kind of an interesting movie as well. So... That's Maps to the Stars. It's available for rent right now on Amazon and iTunes. Now, on our last episode of Film Spotting SVU, our, our listener's choice review was Marvel's Daredevil, the new Netflix series. And by far, it was the most feedback we have ever gotten for a listener's choice review. We, we encouraged it. We invited it. We wanted people to write in because generally the reviews for the show have been pretty positive. Yeah. And we were a lot more mixed. Definitely. Now, we also said we would give an update 
if we watched more of the show and we would weigh in on what we else we saw. Allison, did you watch any more of the show? I watched about 10 minutes more of the show. <laughs> I watched zero minutes more of the show. <laughs> I will say... I do want to finish. I am going to finish it. I just... It's they've already announced busy. there is a season two yes. coming. So that's more motivation for me to finish it because... I'm going to want to probably at least see what happens in this next season moving forward. All these different Netflix Marvel shows, they're all interconnected. I'm going to feel completist. I'm going to want to watch it. And I will say my dad, who's a big uh, comic book Daredevil fan too, he watched it. He agreed he didn't think the beginning was all that good, but he said he thought it got a lot better towards the end of this of the season. So I guess I will have to uh, – I'll have to buckle down and, and actually get through it. But we did get quite a bit of feedback and and not all of it uh, taking us to to task actually it was pretty mixed i'm going to let's read some of this feedback and let's hear what some of the people say cuz we got so much great feedback on daredevil i wanted to share some of it let's start with this email here this one is from chris chris writes I'm writing to tell you both that I agree 100% with your review of Daredevil. A lot of the new shows are like someone took a so-so movie script and stretched it out to 13 hours. I can't believe all of the positive reviews for this show. People must be starved for good television. I really wanted to love it, and I kept hoping it was going to get better, but it actually got worse. Oh, well. Just wanted to give you some support, just in case you were flooded with hate mail. Thanks for the great podcast. That was from Chris. Thank you for the support, Chris. We didn't get a lot of hate mail. Yeah, it was, people disagreed, but people they were disagreed. very polite. Yes, we got, and that's always encouraged and welcomed. Here's a here's a uh, polite disagreement from Craig in Denver. He says, "I think maybe the things you guys didn't like about Daredevil is what I found so good about the show. I've heard many people talk about the golden age of television." that we're residing in right now. And I would definitely agree that the past decade of television has been fantastic, but if it has a failing, it is this structure that has remained very static. One hour drama that tells a story from with a beginning, middle and end that either teaches the main character a lesson or puts him in a difficult spot that challenges his ethics. While movies have experimented with this form, television seems to continue locked into the same formula Daredevil, to my mind, definitely isn't episodic television. I would contend that after the initial viewing, you could drop in or out of this show at any point in any episode and get as much out of it as you would if you were watching an individual episode. The dynamic feels like an autobiography as opposed to a drama. The emphasis is on character and not narrative. When I talk to people about how good the show is, I always talk about it in terms of the series and not the individual episodes. I think locking into a villain of the week or court case that needs resolution of the week would destroy what makes it so interesting. Thanks again. I enjoy the show. That was Craig from Denver. And that was one suggestion I had had, mm. that I wanted more of a churn of, of stories that I wouldn't have minded if there was a court case of yeah. the week. That's interesting. I don't feel like I would have I needed a court case of the week, but I wanted more coherence from episode to episode, even if it was thematic or like kind of act three act or five act structure mm. but all right the next point. the next one is from jen in sunnyvale california who's on our side as well she says hi matt and allison i just finished watching daredevil and listened to your show earlier today i'm not too ashamed to admit that i like a few of the superhero shows out right now especially arrow and the flash and i was hoping to like daredevil I don't mind it being dark or having more violence or fighting, but overall, I was disappointed. Some scenes and entire episodes felt so with one, two, three, four, five O's oh, long. And I felt like the whole season had only really one storyline. I would have loved smaller focused episodes and more characters or likable characters. There seems to be a lot 
lot of arrow repeat as well, down to the scenes where a best friend going through a crisis when he finds out his friend has a secret identity. One of my bigger complaints with Daredevil is the way the show deals with the passage of time or the way scenes are cut together. Instead of moving the show along, keeping things exciting or suspenseful, or just being seamless, I felt continuously frustrated. It happened a lot, but I'm thinking of a sequence around episode three or four though there are more, where Matt Murdock is stuck in a bombed-out building with a Russian and is trying to extract information from him. The show would go on and then cut back to them, and I'd think, wait, they're still there? What have they been doing this whole time? The whole thing was just odd. Thanks for the great show from Jen in Sunnyvale, California. And I think we might have mentioned that episode. That was a very distended episode where he's yeah the guy is dying it takes this guy hours and hours to die and he's being dragged all over the place but he's slowly (laughs) divulging the information about the kingpin it was it was it was too much for me frankly all right let's get to this email here this one's from frederick he says hi matt nelson i enjoyed your show a lot but i was surprised how much you both disliked daredevil i for one enjoyed it greatly Though I'll admit, not entirely without reservations, my main criticism is that the cops are so incredibly corrupt that they become a caricature. There is almost no limit to what Wilson Fisk can compel them to do, and it does stretch credibility. I do also agree that the show could have used more lawyering. I think it would have worked well as a continuous narrative. I'm glad it's not an episodic show, and it didn't drop into a default one new client per week episode, but yes, seeing Matt Murdock and Foggy Nelson solve some cases and do actual work within the story would have been welcome. Cheers. That was from Frederick. So, liked it more than us, but could see our points. We got a lot of emails like that. So... Uh, there was we have there were even more emails here. I got one from Ashley. I have one from Andy. I had one from Lauren. They just people were very. It was interesting. People were very passionate about the show. Some yeah. people really loved it, and some people were, they had the similar complaints to us. Yeah, we read them all. So you know, even if we haven't, we don't have time to read them all on the show. We read all of your emails and really appreciate them. Yeah, thank you. It was really great. We got so much uh, feedback about last week's episode. We got more listener recommendations than ever before. It was definitely uh, people were wanting to share, which was fantastic. Please keep them coming. The email address is svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Now, before we get to Behind the Eight Ball, let's do Singer and Will Moore's Completely Concise and Totally Succinct New Release Roundup, the segment everyone loves and Allison can't remember the name of. Can never remember it. We've got, a. I don't know how concise we can be here hmm. because we've got one of, I would say, one of the two biggest movies of the year. Yeah. It is opening this Friday. We've both seen it. We both reviewed it, right? You've reviewed it already? Yes. yes. Okay. It is Avengers colon Age of Ultron. Allison, we saw it at the same screening. We did. And uh, I was I, I looked over at you occasionally. You didn't seem too upset. You were sitting no. near our colleague, David Ehrlich. Who is not a Not fan a huge of, Marvel yeah. fan. And, I, and one of my favorite parts of the movie was just looking over at his face a few times. And he was a little, he looked a little famished. But you didn't seem that uh, upset by it. Did you enjoy it? I did. I mean, I like... I like Avengers, the Avengers. I, I liked Age of Ultron, though not, I would say, as much. But I did feel like it was a very good time. And... Uh, I, I did also feel like it was it it definitely has a lot of business to take care of. Yes. And that at times felt like it felt like something that it was laboring under a little more than I would say the first film or other Marvel films have done so obviously. I don't know that I would agree with that it's laboring so much. I think it does it fairly gracefully. There's some of it that's uh, there's some of it that the I that's Thor part. Yeah, the Thor part is like, bad. Yeah. Yeah. But uh <laughs> But it's not it's it's handled better than Iron Man two, which to me is sort of the anti-gold standard of how to incorporate the world-building side with the main story. Yeah. I, I still, you know, the parts about it that I like the best are usually the tiny, the little moments. Sure. Like the little beats 
the scene which is like was dropped as a a promo a long time ago the of party, them at the party is great yeah like the and their dynamics in a lot of ways the movie left me wanting more of them like hanging out at avengers headquarters yeah and just you know you you these characters whedon has such a good feel for them right as like weird people and not just larger than life superheroes and like the ways in which he comes up with them interacting, those are still my favorite parts. Right. Well, he, he really understands how to bring humanity to these gods, essentially, right? I mean, the yeah. shawarma scene at the end of the first one yes. was so wonderful. Yeah. And the party scene is sort of the closest thing we get to that here is that they're all kind of interacting and we get to see all the different kind of dynamics. You know, the Bruce Banner and Black Widow have this kind of interesting relationship and Steve Rogers will pop in and comment on it. You know, like that they, they've, they've been together long enough now that they're not just meeting each other and that they have relationships and different relationships to one another. I mean, I'm a huge comic book nerd. So I know people probably are shocked to hear that. But so for me, this is like catnip. This is really and, – and what I was kind of blown away by was just how nerdy this movie is. It is so nerdy. I mean, even more than the first one, I thought. Like, in, by in what ways? Like, what are some of the nerdiest? Mo- like, the I fact don't want to, no spoilers, but obviously, sure. The fact that there is a flying robot that has a magical gem on his forehead, yeah, is that pretty, was not my favorite moment. It's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty nerdy. And there are hallucinations and dark glimpses of a future involving, you know, aliens and intergalactic warfare and you know and even like some of these like relationships like the hulk and the scarlet witch relationship is so like oh see i feel like that like what works about that is just like their weird humanity in it you know but that element of sort of the blending of all these different things science fiction action melodrama soap opera comedy that to me really feels like an avengers comic book a real classic marvel comic the way one page will be spider-man sitting there crying and the next scene he's making jokes about stilt man you know like that is what this movie i thought really gets really well is that that feeling from a comic book that sort of sense of wild tone crazy freedom i thought was what this movie gets so great and it, it's and it's one of the biggest movies of the year and it's so nerdy and weird and crazy and fun like i just like that this movie even though it is a product and there are moments where you do feel like they're pushing really hard to set up stuff for the future movies that it still is like this weird quirky strange thing sure and i i mean i love the weird quirky strangeness of it i think it's more the part to me that that felt like the labored part that i mentioned beyond the setup is also just like the big action finale which just it's one of the things that i think comic book movies are running into which is like it's hard to differentiate them now they all tend to look you know they look very similar. Sure. And even this. I mean, Marvel's movies by design look, look very, very similar. similar. Yeah. And even this, I felt like, you know, Whedon has always been a better director of like dialogue and interaction sure. than action. Yeah. And I mean, while I don't think it was bad, I think the, the action finale was a little underwhelming for me compared to, I don't know, the rest of the movie, which was a little more engaging. I think there's some great moments in that in that finale. I think the opening is really cool, too. This is like a big action scene yeah, in the beginning. Yeah, I like the opening You more, like that better. Okay, yeah. The thing I liked about the ending, uh, and it felt like a very pointed response to some other superhero movies, particularly like Man of Steel, is that they focus just as much on beating yes. Ultron as they do saving, saving people. people. And that it true. is That we really get to see these characters act like superheroes, not just guys who have superpowers and cool costumes. They are selfless. They are sacrificing. They will, like, Captain America's like, we are not leaving this place that they're at, which I won't spoil, until everyone is safe. Like, and maybe they can't save everyone, but they're right. gonna try. No, that's a good point. And, and again, that was another thing that I really felt like, yes, this is the kind of stuff I want to see 
see in a superhero comic book movie. Yeah, it's cool when the characters are punching each other through buildings and fighting all over the world and stuff. But like I, I sort of part of what I love about these kinds of stories are the kind of noble ideals about them. And and Joss Whedon really feel like believes in that side of it, like that he really wants you I mean, to buy well, into that's it. That's also the fundamental drama of the movie right the conflict of the movie yes. comes from someone's yes. ideals and how they may or may not play out like how what how they actually are applied to the real world ultron the, the first scene he's in he is directly challenging them as they're talking about being worthy and they're talking it's the scene in the trailer where they're picking up thor's hammer you can only pick up the hammer if you're worthy is what the legend says and and ultron is like well you know are you really worthy are you really heroes and i think that the movie kind of tests that and I think that that's that's nice. That's a kind of Joss Whedon writing touch. That it's not just big boom right, explosions. Right, a bad person has come, and we're going to fight them now. Right, and then it's like not just we have to fight them. It's how do we fight them? Right. What is the right way to fight them? So yeah, I I enjoyed. It. I wouldn't blame anyone who's a casual fan who would walk out of this movie. Going, who is the robot? Who is the Scarlet Witch? Why is Quicksilver here? Was he an X Men? They, they definitely push that like your tolerance of like what <laughs> like yes it is it robot. is nerdy yeah well especially the scarlet witch scarlet all witch. of her power usage involves a lot of like <laughs> you liquid, can't see what allison is wave, doing but she's waving wave her dancing hands. yeah it's a 90s. lot of it's a lot of wild gesticulation and Le- yes and uh, mm-hmm. eastern european accents and quicksilver yeah. is in there he runs around like fast. he was just in the x-men it's a different actor i think people are gonna be totally confused about <laughs> that and i and i wouldn't blame them there's a lot here it's overwhelming but i think it's 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 really fun and for a hardcore it's fan a good time. It's, it's a good time and for not a hardcore fan i still had a very good time yeah it's fun i, I think i think hardcore fans are probably gonna like it more than casual fans i i'm guessing will walk out saying oh, i like the first one better because it was a little easier to digest it i liked the first one better <laughs> that's doesn't surprise me all right well that's avengers age of ultron and it'll make 600 gabillion dollars yep. by the time uh, this episode is out, probably. So let's get to Behind the Eight Ball now. That's where we wrap up our show with three new releases on streaming, two listener recommendations, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, would you like to go first? I would love to go you first. You look like you would like oh, to go really? first. Yeah, you have that look was on it, your face. It, I could just I was read it. doing like the yes, I'm Actually, that I, that's true. I conjured it. I made you want to do it with my... Scarlet Witch mind control powers. Oh, good. Yes. I can't wait for the accents. Yes. Come after this movie comes out. <laughs> All right. Let's start with three new releases. Okay. First up is a film I like a lot from last year. It is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is now streaming on Netflix. This is Anna Lily Amapur's Iranian Vampire Western. Yet another one of those. Uh, very Jim Jarmushi set in a ghost town called Bad City in which there is a lonesome vampire played by Sheila Vand who wanders the streets uh, basically avenging wronged women and uh, riding the occasional skateboard in her uh, charor. And it's great. Uh, I really like this. It's just like it's a little moody and uh, and very throwback indie, but uh, it's, it's, pretty ni- it's pretty neat. That's for me on Netflix. Also new to Netflix is another much-discussed uh, indie debut from a female filmmaker, The Babadook, the 2014 horror film psychological portrait of a of maternal despair, written and directed by Jennifer Kent, uh, about starring Essie Davis as a woman as a as a widow who's been raising her son alone, played by Noah Wiseman, and they're both kind of tormented by a possible haunting slash possession in the form of a pop-up book. 
I, you know, it's a horror film, but I feel like it's better to look at the Babadook as a, a psychological portrait. I think that it's it's kind of its scares are more come in the form of a breakdown of someone who is afraid or and who may actually be unable or unable to take care of her child because of depression and because of grief uh, and the ways in which that manifests. Uh, and I think it's got a great uh, performance from Essie Davis uh, as the mom. So that is now streaming on Netflix. And finally, new to Hulu is The Substitutes, which is a Danish horror comedy from Ola Bornadal, who directed, the Night, who directed Night Watch and then remade it in English himself with Ewan McGregor. It stars Paprika Steen as Ula Harms, who is actually an alien on Earth who has come to figure out the unalien quality of empathy and who becomes a substitute teacher for a sixth grade class. Uh, and the class quickly figures out there's something wrong with their substitute, who is hilariously mean to them and scary when there are no adults around. She calls them weak, sweaty little dumplings and is scornful and like hard and bites the head off a chicken. But, of course, in the traditional kids' horror comedy mold, none of the adults believe them. They all like her or think she is sexy. And it's up to the children to figure out a way to battle their alien substitute. And Pricistine pre- is, like, hilarious and uh, scary and funny in this in this role. Uh, it's, like, just a little more intense than your typical, like, kids' movie from these days might be. But it does seem like it might be an 80s movie that time forgot that like kids would love uh, but it's it's a lot of fun the substitute is streaming on hulu all right how about two listener recommendations okay first up we have one from genevieve in toronto who writes i would like to recommend the movie 10 years which can be found for digital rental but unfortunately doesn't seem to be streaming it's a movie from 2011 which i had somehow never heard of despite its big cast of famous actors channing tatum rosario dawson chris pratt kate mara oscar isaac justin long aubrey plaza the movie is centered around the night of a 10-year high school reunion I had absolutely no expectations for this movie, but I thought it was really lovely, sweet, and absolutely worth the watch. It is a somewhat predictable story with no big plot twists, but it felt true to the experience of reconnecting with friends after many years apart and looking back on how people have changed or failed to change since high school. Beyond all of this, though, I thought the movie would be worth recommending just for the scene where you get a musical performance by Oscar Isaac. He is just fantastic as always. And I would agree. He's pretty much on a roll and I would watch him on in anything at this point. So thank you Genevieve for that recommendation. All right, and next up is a recommendation from a person I know in real life. Thank you for writing in Paris in New York. I'd like to recommend Spirit of the Beehive, he writes, a beautiful and haunting Spanish movie from 1973 directed by Victor Arise. It's set in a small village in 1940 and follows a six-year-old girl as she is mystified by a horror movie shown by a traveling projectionist. The movie has political undertones, but it's also a very nuanced portrait of a child trying to come to terms with concepts beyond her understanding. It speaks to the way that movies can ignite the imagination of a young mind and has a great feel for the intangible and mysterious. I'd recommend it especially for fans of Days of Heaven, Pan's Labyrinth, and Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's available on Hulu+. Plus. I love that movie, so definitely check it out. I second that recommendation. All right, and one film chosen from your my list. You give me number 44. That is The Honorable Woman, which is the British miniseries from last year. You played on Sundance TV here in the U.S., starring Maggie Gyllenhaal, who won a Golden Globe, I think, for her performance as Anglo-Israeli businesswoman Nessa Stein, uh, a woman who has just been commended for her commitment to the Middle East peace process and who is working on 
bringing optical fiber cables to the West Bank when there is both a suicide related to her business and there's a kidnapping and things start to go wrong. This is a series that I remember hearing such good things about, but it also seems so dense mm. and so like demanding of your attention that I never cleared the time to watch it. I heard like, good things about yeah. it too. So it's just, it's there on my, my list and someday I will be prepared to pay attention enough to it to <laughs> actually sit down and watch it. <laughs> All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. All right, first up, David Wayne's funny spoof of romantic comedies, They Came Together, which stars Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler as a couple who fall in love in extremely cliched ways. If you're a fan of The State and Wet Hot American Summer, I think you'll like this one. We actually did a full listener's choice review of that movie back on Film Spotting SVU number 64, which you can find, of course, at filmspottingsvu.com. But the movie is now streaming on Netflix. So I wanted to throw out a little mention of it since we uh, both like that movie. Next up is Fubar, Balls to the Wall, which is streaming on Hulu. This is a 2010 sequel to a 2002 comedy called Fubar about a couple of Canadian metalhead slackers. The style of the movie is a you know faux documentary with really loose improvisational dialogue and jokes. Kind of the office meets strange brew, I guess, is maybe a way to describe it. In the, If we were in the player, that's how I would describe it. And it's directed by Michael Dawes, who uh, people, I think, know now more. He's the director of Goon, a fabulous hockey comedy from 2011 that got really good reviews. And also he directed the romantic comedy What If, also, I think it was called The F Word. Yeah. That was with Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan. Also, that got great reviews, too. It was too. really charming. It was I good. I really liked it. I still haven't seen that one. That one's, I think, on my main non my list Netflix queue, my disc list. I'm still waiting to see that one. But I heard great things about that, too. I'd never seen the original FUBAR. You don't have to see the original FUBAR. I still haven't seen the original FUBAR, but I saw this movie at South by a few years ago and thought it was hilarious. So saw it pop up on Hulu. So that's my next recommendation. FUBAR, Balls to the Wall. And finally, a recommendation for my fellow So Bad It's Good fans out there. Nurse, formerly Nurse 3D when it premiered in theaters. So you lose the third dimension on Netflix. Thankfully, trash works in however many dimensions you can see it is. This is a deranged serial-killing nurse, that old chestnut that we've seen (laughs) so many times. She kind of acts like a murderous Avenger, kind of like the Punisher, if the Punisher was a woman who dressed in naughty nurses' outfits. She gets mixed up in the in the life of a fellow nurse and her boyfriend. This movie is just absolute trash, Allison. It's sleazy. Frankly, it's sleazier than some actual pornography that I've seen. Funnier, too. That's why I liked it. <laughs> That's why I'm recommending Nurse, which is streaming now on Netflix. Okay, two listener recommendations. First up, a recommendation here from Chris. Chris Alexander is his name. He says, hey, guys, I'd like to recommend the cult documentary Mondo Hollywood, which I caught at AFI Fest last year when Paul Thomas Anderson interviewed the filmmaker as a tie-in to Inherent Vice, which is a similarly kooky look at eccentric Angelinos who are out of touch with reality. I was reminded of the film by another listener's choice, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Mondo Hollywood can be uh, posed as an interesting counterpoint to that. Instead of concerned with the movies, it's more about the people on the fringes of the industry, many of whom imagine that they are more of a part of it than they really are. 
It is both very of its time with its DIY aesthetic and a lot of corny 60s touches, but it also feels strangely modern in its relationship with its subjects. Watching Mondo Hollywood, I felt like I was somehow watching reality television from 1967, because like today's reality shows, it is both straight-faced and objective in presenting us with the lives of quote-unquote real people who couldn't be any more ridiculous, while also inviting the audience to mock them. There's plenty of marijuana, some weird sex stuff, crazy, crazy raging egos, celebrity cameos, and the kind of wild 60s dance parties I didn't think actually ever happened in real life. It takes a few minutes to fall under its spell, but I can't imagine a better doc to watch with friends and a few drinks. You can find it streaming at Snag Films and other places online. Thanks. That's from Chris Alexander. Mondo Hollywood, the cult documentary Mondo Hollywood. A nice pick for an episode all about the dark side of Hollywood. And now I've got a recommendation from Alex in Fresno, California. Alex writes, I have a recommendation that's a little different than what is normally chosen for the podcast. I would like to recommend a Tumblr. It's called Short Film Masterpieces, and the address is shortfilmmasterpieces.tumblr.com. This Tumblr is filled with entertaining, bizarre, and funny short films ranging from 2 to 20 minutes long. All the films are from different directors and include stop-motion animation, claymation, computer animation, and live action. I've enjoyed watching these little films, and I'm sure others in the film-spotting SVU world will as well. Thanks for the great show. That was from Alex in Fresno, California. And again, that's shortfilmmasterpieces.tumblr.com. All right, and one from your My List. You gave me number five, and number five on my My List is the film Explorers. The plot description is dreaming of space travel. A teenage science whiz and his best friend create an interplanetary spacecraft in a homemade laboratory. And this was another movie that was discussed on a recent episode of Film Spotting SVU, SVU number 80, which was our Ethan Hawke episode. He is one of the stars of the film. And uh, Allison, that was one of your picks. It was. And I said at the time I was going to add it to my my list. As I sometimes say on the show, you hear me say that on the show. Well, th- that is not hyperbole, Allison. I am a man of my word. I did add it to my my list, and there it sits at number five, where it will probably sit for a while, but eventually I will watch it. Explorers. Streaming on Netflix. It's time for our listener's choice options for our next episode. Allison, I believe you have the first one. What is it? I do. It's a... It's a, a, a movie from a few years ago, but it's related. It's very timely. It's related to something we've been talking about recently. Yes. It is All Good Things, which is currently streaming on Netflix. The 2010 uh, crime drama slash romantic drama directed by Andrew Jarecki, starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst and inspired by the life of Robert Durst, who then became the subject of Jarecki's documentary miniseries, The Jinx. Uh, which may have gotten him, actually did get him basically arrested again. So we thought it would be a good time to look back on this movie, which it doesn't have, I, it wasn't that well received Not when it came out. Not particularly, except having, by Robert Durst. He yes, really liked Robert it. Robert Durst loved it. He did. So this, uh, you know, I haven't finished The Jinx yet, but I'm going to before. If we, Should we talk about this? Then we can kind of, you know, we bring up both We can throw that in those, too? I okay, so. cool. So I think, you know, there's a lot to talk about there, especially... When does anyone, anyone's fandom of the movie about themselves lead to their eventual arrest? <laughs> it's very a pretty rarely. unique circumstance, and it should, I mean, it should make for interesting viewing at the very least. You want to just say, so that's, you know. <laughs> yes, okay. Yes, so that's All Good Things, and that is streaming on Netflix. All right. Our second option is on a new, well, the website isn't new, but sort of this service that they're providing, or this content section is new. 
It's called Yahoo Screen. This is Yahoo's new kind of attempt to compete with some other streaming sites. And the television show is called Other Space. You can watch it at screen.yahoo.com slash other-space. And this is the new show from Paul Feig, the creator of Freaks and Geeks and the director of many films now, Bridesmaids. He's got a new film coming out called Spy with Melissa McCarthy. I think this is the first show he's created since Freaks and Geeks. Um, He's been doing mostly movies since then. The the description of the show, it's a sci-fi show. It says, the show follows a young and inexperienced crew as they adventure into an unknown universe to face mysterious clouds, food and fuel shortages, robot rebellions, folds in time, and the occasional alien attack. And the cast includes Joel Hodgson and Trace Bellew from Mystery Science Theater 3000, who are both actually on Freaks and Geeks. So... I'm interested because it's Paul Feig. He hasn't done a show in a very long time. He's obviously busy with TV, uh, with film, but as a TV guy, he hasn't done anything in a while. And I'm also curious because this is a Yahoo show, and I'm trying to curious what does a Yahoo show look like? Does it rate with Hulu and Netflix and Amazon, all these other sites? How do they compare? So for both of those reasons, I'm kind of very curious to check this one out. I'm not sure how many episodes it is. There are eight altogether. It's well, half we'll, hour. So we'll try to. Enough. Yeah, it should be easy yeah. enough to watch the whole thing. And so, I was I was listening to him talk about this on Bullseye, the podcast Bullseye. Sure. And it sounds like it's pretty Paul Feig ish and pretty kind of personal as well. It, half the crew are kind of nerdy, and the other half are sort of rebellious. Yeah, and it seems like it's got a dynamic that uh, like older sister younger brother dynamic that's a little freaks and geeks ish mm-hmm. and yeah i you know i would like i love him he's a great he's a great guy that paul Feig. i'd be interested in watching this yeah so that's option two other space which is now available the whole series for free uh, i believe on yeah. yahoo screen all right our third pick is boy meets girl which is streaming on netflix and i which i, I believe i've mentioned before uh, it is the 1984 film that was uh, Leos Carax's directorial debut, starring Denis Levant, who has been his muse of sorts, and Marie Perrier. Uh, and it's about the relationship between an aspiring filmmaker, played by Levant, uh, who has just been broken up with, and a suicidal young woman, played by Perrier, who has also just been broken up with. And I should mention, once someone wrote in once and asked if we ever... Uh, revisit or ever actually watch some of these movies that we say are on our my list. Yeah. And for you, dear reader, we uh, are dear listener. We are, we dug up this and, uh, and all good things are actually previous films that we have mentioned as being on our my list. So yes. these are two options that will have us watching things that were mentioned on our my list. That's right. So uh, which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit or TV show? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, May 4th at noon. And after that, as always, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV show and then join us for a conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, May 12th. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie or TV review you pick. But in the meantime, we recommend you follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. 
And you can also follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners, and from Allison, who's constantly looking at these sites, finding what's new, sharing suggestions. It's a wonderful Twitter account to follow. I follow it. I learn a lot just from mm-hmm. following it myself. Don't forget, you can also leave us a review on iTunes. You can also rate us on iTunes. Both of those things are very helpful and help us reach new listeners. So if you have a chance, please do so. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.